On today's show, let's get ready for Cavs-Knicks Game 2. That's a 7.30 tip in Cleveland on Tuesday. Let's get into it. You are Locked On Cavs, your daily Cleveland Cavaliers podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by GameTime. Download the GameTime app, create an account, and use the code LOCKEDONNBA for $20 off your first purchase. Last-minute tickets, lowest prices guaranteed. All right, I'm Chris Manning. That's Evan Damerell. Jake Stevens, as always, is producing Cavs-Knicks Game 2. is Tuesday. Cleveland right now, uh, according to our friends at FanDuel, is a five-point favorite. That is a, f- a half of a point difference from... Game one, where they were five and a half point favorites. Evan, let's start with Jetty Osman, who played a ton of minutes in the second half. Look, spent a lot of time defending Jalen Brunson. It feels like he is probably going to be in the rotation. What do you make of, of Jetty Osman and how he fits into this series based on what we saw in game one? I mean, I wrote about this a bit for Monday's story about on Right Down Euclid, just about pulling the hook on Ricky Rubio. And Jetty Osman just alone provides you shooting upside. I think people can really dig into the brass tacks, the fact that like Brunson didn't make a ton of shots against him in terms of just Osman being the primary defender. Sure, you can look at the moments down the stretch where like Osman was getting ripped apart a little bit and nitpick at that. And I'm more of so looking at that and thinking like, I don't know if it's the best course of action, but Cleveland is starving for some form of just offensive creation off the bench at this point, and you're hopefully going to get it from Karis LeVert. Uh, you're not getting it currently from Ricky Rubio. I think Dean Wade is just too gun-shy, so you need to look away from him. And if you go the Lamar Stevens route, you're not going to get that shooting upside, so you have to look elsewhere, and your alternatives are Dean Green and Jetty Osmond, and maybe it's it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't in terms of Green and Osmond here, and you lean towards Jetty in this one, and I know folks will say, like, hey, analytically speaking he's cleveland's best shooter off the bench yeah that there's some validity to that but you have to just kind of pick and choose when it's optimal to utilize jetty and maybe that's more a question for jp bicker staff and just the coaching staff in general on how they can maximize the offensive opportunities for osman out there but i i'm i'm in agreement with you like he played very well in game one you have to reward that play to begin with i think when jp bicker staff was asked by jason lloyd about this about Figuring out the rotations, Bickerstaff said like he has faith in his guys and he has a full, full understanding of it, and he's just trying to find the best players available for him in the grand scheme that maximizes their opportunities to win. And for me, that that kind of screams Jetty Osmond, at least on the offensive side of the ball. And granted, we'll we'll see how it goes. Like if Jetty gets roasted on defense in game two, the hook might be short for him. He might get pulled pretty quickly. Um, and then maybe you look at like Danny Green or shoot, maybe even Lamar Stevens or Dean Wade gets some burn just because of the rebounding issues that New York presents as well. But at least on paper, Ozzy makes a ton of sense just from the shooting aspect alone. Yeah, I, I think the offensive upside of Jetty to me is much more interesting than the, than the defensive upside. Like I, I, I would not get it all caught up in how Jetty defended Jalen Brunson at the end of game one. I, I think if you look at what he did, was it like adequate? Yes. But I, I came away from that in real time and then watching back the tape that Jetty is both not as quick as Brunson and Brunson is stronger than him. Jetty is not like Jetty. Brunson was like four or nine against Jetty. Okay. He didn't cook him every time. 
but he had advantages on him and he got more space and more openings for shots, I think, than than those numbers would indicate. I, I would not like if I'm JB Bickerstaff, if I'm the Cavs, I am not doubling down on Jetty as like my point of attack defensive guy. I think he no. the minute the minutes from a shooting perspective, from the 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 need for just some any kind of three point volume, I think is a thing. But I also would like look, I understand he didn't play well offensively in game one. I would like trust Isaac Okora much more. I think you are not going to be a better like there is no world in this series, Evan. Mm-hmm. Where the Cavs are a better offensive team than the Knicks. That is not what is going to happen here. That is not going to happen. The Knicks were a better offensive team all year. Oh, oh okay. I see where you're going with this now. Because I'm just like, in terms of numbers, New York was a better offensive team than Cleveland. Okay. Yeah, that's, I, what, I, that's I, what I'm saying. I see where you're navigating this. I must have misheard yeah. you in my uh, my clouded uh, goblin brain. But go yes. ahead. The Knicks are a better offensive team. The Cavs' path to victory is not getting, has never at all year been, let's get in the shootouts. Let's outpace teams offensively. That is not like how they win games. They win games via defense. They win games via getting stops. The numbers on Okora on the floor versus off with him defense, for defense were like outstanding. I, I think you got to lead into your defensive identity as much as you possibly mm-hmm. can. Yes, you need Moby to make more shots and Allen to make more shots and Levert to do some stuff. But like you need to ride Okoro, I think, defensively and play Osman. Play them both. But I... I I don't think you can like search for something that isn't your identity by like trying to make Jetty like your closing piece. I agree with you. I think the luxury of Josh Hart being doubtful for game two is at least a something that the Cavs can put in their back pocket. Maybe this makes it a little bit easier for them to at least tie up this series. Uh, heading into Madison Square Garden tied up 1-1 is a completely different situation than being down 2 nothing to the Knicks at this point in my eyes. But... I, I agree with you. Like you have to give Jetty some runway, but I, I think you have to lean on Isaac Okora a little bit more. Uh, I asked him today, uh, as we recorded this on Tuesday or Monday evening, rather, like, "Hey, how's your knee doing?" He said he's fine. He's feeling a hundred percent. He did have uh, some, like, a kinetic tape around his like left knee in that region. Is so like that's kind of just worth keeping an eye. Maybe he's not like fully a hundred percent, but. J.B. Bickerstaff said he was a full participant in everything they did in practice that day. So that's encouraging in and of itself. And then just to go off that Okoro line of questioning, I asked him, like, hey, did you think you had a little bit of rust or was it nerves or what, what was going on for you out there? Just, as for, just at least to open the game offensively where you saw him kind of get these wide open three point opportunities. And it was a lot of like a Josh Hart, even Emmanuel Cookley or R.J. Barrett as well, just sagging off of Okoro and kind of playing a little bit more help defense against Mitchell and Garland just to create pressure at the top. And Okoro was like, there's a little bit of rust. I hadn't played in three weeks up to that point, nearly three weeks. And it's just that is maybe it's a mixture of the jitters, but he at least is saying like, hey, we understand what the intensity level needs to be, what we kind of need to match with the Knicks going into this game. And uh, to your point, I, I don't expect Isaac Okoro to be like a crispy, clean six of six from three point range or something like that. But if he's able to make two, possibly three, three pointers, like that could swing a lot of things back into Cleveland's favor and at least would make the defensive pressure on Isaac Okoro and Darius Garland a little bit lighter. And this is something we've stressed for a while, especially when Okoro joined the starting lineup, is if he's able to keep defenses honest on the perimeter, like it's going to unlock a lot of stuff for Cleveland offensively. And to your point, Jared Allen needs to be better. Evan Mobley needs to be better. I think Darius Garland needs to be better as well. Uh, likewise for Karis LeVert and maybe even Ricky Rubio if Rubio ends up playing this game. But Okoro is 
the smallest potato in this field right now and there's so many other things that need to happen for cleveland just to kind of click and we can kind of keep beating this drum but donovan mitchell's the only one who showed up um and the knicks just kind of hit the calves with the physicality that they're not comfortable with and i am now curious to wonder like okay they have a taste of it now are they able to course correct um and kind of exploit some of the things the knicks threw at them because as you smartly pointed out like Donovan Mitchell may be figuring out um, New York's pick and roll defense could unlock a lot of things for not just him, but Darius Garland as well. And even Karis LeVert too. Today's episode is brought to you by Game Time. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, and comedy and theater near you. Game Time offers flash deals and last-minute tickets. Easy to find and buy tickets for every kind of event in your area. That, by the way, includes NBA playoffs if you wanted to go to Game 2. Image of seat views. It's the fastest-growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Buy tickets in a matter of seconds. Two taps. And then you're set. Tickets are sent directly to your phone so you never have to dig through your email. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use the code LOCKDOWNNBA, that's down below, to get $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, oh. create an account, redeem the code LOCKDOWNNBA for $20 off, and download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Wait, 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 folks. If you use that code LOCKDOWNNBA, there are currently tickets going for $38 on game time for Tuesday's game between the Cavs and the Knicks. So you can get a ticket for 18 bucks if you use code locked on NBA today on the game time app. All right. So Evan, let's look at what needs to go right for Cleveland to, to get a winning game too. I, the Josh Hart thing is, I think a big deal. Josh Hart mm-hmm. is going to, would kill you on the offensive glass. He made some tough shots in game one. You know, like he's just one of their sources of offensive rebounding. He's not, you just don't have to worry about him. Like, you just don't have to worry about him, like, crashing Karis Lavert. You know, I, I don't know exactly how they'll replace his minutes. Like, does it mean more for RJ Barrett? I think Cleveland would live with that. Does it mean more Obi Toppin? I think Cleveland would live with that, right? Like, I think there are things you could certainly live with if you're Cleveland. Th- that is a, a thing that would give me hope if I'm Cleveland. It's like, okay, like, I, they're favored for a reason, I think, still, but no. No Josh Hart, I think, is a, an advantage for Cleveland if they're going to go, if that if this is going to go a certain way. I absolutely agree. Like, maybe it's more Miles McBride getting minutes if the Knicks want to go nine, or if you had nine players deep if Josh Hart is unavailable. You probably see more of Emmanuel quickly. You see more of Quentin Grimes, RJ Barrett, as you had noted. Like, there, there's ways the Knicks can tackle this, Obi Toppin as well. And if you're the Cavs, you're happy with this just because Josh Hart had like Jared Allen said after practice, like a lot of people are going to be talking about the rebounding and as they should, like Mitchell Robinson ate them alive on the offensive glass. And um, Josh Hart had 17 points, 10 rebounds, two assists from the floor in his playoff debut for New York. And that, that he was a bit of the X factor for me in that game for New York. Like you could tell that, Jalen Brunson dealing with foul trouble was really working in Cleveland's favor. Um, R.J. Barrett's shot wasn't falling. I think um, Julius Randle still isn't quite 100%, but he was still kind of making some of those just like wacky Julius Randle shots where you're just like, okay, sometimes you have to tip your cap or sometimes you just have to wonder like what laws of physics is he defying in order to make these shots. So Josh Hart just coming in kind of just steadied the Knicks a little bit at times on offense, especially on defense. I think 
it's just uncanny that this Knicks team in general just knows where to be at every given, any given moment in terms of just offensive rebounding. And I think that's just credit to how the Knicks operate. Like one through five, they're all ready to crash the glass off a missed opportunity. And let's say Hart doesn't play. Uh, you still have to be mindful of the fact that the Knicks are one of the best offensive rebounding teams in the league for a reason. And it's going to be a concerted effort. Like, yeah, a lot of it does fall on Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, but I think J.B. Bickerstaff did correctly point out the fact that, like it's not just on those two like you need a more effort from the wing play whether it's Isaac Okoro or Dean Wade or Lamar Stevens if those are your guys playing at the three and then Donovan Mitchell Darius Garland and Karis LeVert as well depending on like that two three one spots depending on how you run these rotations and lineups out and Jetty Osmond too like you need guys just kind of crashing the glass and just playing with a little bit of that physical edge so that you don't let the Knicks just kind of assert their dominance on you early in this one, and it turns into this another god-awful scrap where Donovan Mitchell tries to bail you out and find somehow some way to win this game. Just for context on, I like just statistically, why no hard is a big deal. He is full stop one of the elite rebounding wings in the NBA. Yeah, so this year, according to the clean of the glass, had a defensive rebounding percentage of 18.2. That is in the top 3% of, of wings. He has an off, offensive rebounding percentage of 8.8%. That is in the upper 3% of wings. He has been, and that that's with the Knicks specifically. He has just been, he's just like a monster in the glass. He is like a very specific kind of wing, but provides a ton of value and fits kind of exactly what the Knicks are doing. It has been really mm-hmm. emphasized to do that. I, I don't think... Like, you know, if it's Toppin, if it's McBride, if it's like, you know, is it Mormonage for Barrett, whatever it is, whatever Tibbs' solution is, they're just not going to match that same exact heart. Like, I, I, yes, the Cavs will have to, like, like, I, I've, the Carousel will have to box people out. Like, I would maybe consider playing Lamar Stevens because he will box people out and be physical. But, like, I, you don't have as much of a worry about some of this going haywire with Art. Now, you get to Mitchell Robinson. One of the things, Evan, that I think really stood out to me was on defense, what the Cavs like to do with Allen is he doesn't drop super deep. He kind of will come closer up to the line. He will kind of play in between. Now, most of the time, he's good enough to recover, to block shots, to at least contest shots without fouling. It, it, you know, I, I, I maintain he's been like a step slower this year, but still pretty effective. The numbers bear that out as well. One of the things that really killed the Cavs in game one was that when he would come up, Robinson is slipping behind him. And if a floater goes up, if a shot attempt goes up, if a three goes up on a, sw- on, on a pass, off a pass, Robinson is like beating Allen to these spots. Mm-hmm. And that is just like what Mitchell Robinson is going to do. He is going to get in, get in those spots. He's going to cause those problems. He's like particularly just the kind of center. And with an X play, is kind of built to exploit you know, guys at the centers that come up a little bit out of drop. I don't I don't like know if the Cavs can like fully alter their defensive scheme. Like I I there might no. be there's spot there's some back end layering I think you could do. Maybe you drop out a little bit further just to avoid that and that's maybe where Okoro on Brunson would be you could say, okay, like we can trust Okoro on his own a little bit more than than Osman or, or Darius or Donovan, right? In those kind of situations. But Jarrett just like has to it's a lot it 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 is gonna be hard. I'm not gonna say he's gonna succeed every time, but he cannot get beat to spots right under the rim as much as Mitch Robinson, I mean, like mm-hmm. the, we should, we should, like we should know too. Like when I went, I went and pulled the numbers on how good of an offensive rebounding night the Knicks had. If overall regular season playoffs, that was the third highest offensive rebounding rate a team posted against the Cavs all year. That's an interesting statistic. Just to like when you put it into context like that, Allen kind of said like we've 
never been the greatest at defensive rebounding. Um, and you have to just kind of respect the fact that like Robinson Hart, the Knicks in general are very good at that. But I think it is, maybe it is like an oil and water situation where those, just those two don't mix very well together, but it's, it's interesting just to point out. And like you said, you can't stop Mitchell Robinson a hundred percent and you can't completely change your entire schematic or formula or plan in like a macro sense like that. Like that, that's, that would be wild if the Cavs just threw out everything that they had planned for this series and just completely like went back to the drawing board um, in two days time to try and beat the Knicks. So they're going to just tinker and find things that work. And I do think some of it is the physicality aspect. I do wonder if just maybe throwing two bigger bodies at um, Mitchell Robinson helps too. Like, let's say you have like the spacing wise, it's going to be abhorrent, but like if you run lineups of Stevens, Mobley and Allen, like you use Stevens, it's just kind of like that extra guy who can grind a little bit and just be like the extra body that either one boxes out Robinson or just kind of just tries to slow him down and maybe check him a little bit just to make sure like he doesn't get those opportune spots to grab offensive boards. Like he just has a tenacity to do so. And you just find ways to maybe counterbalance it a bit because if there is no Josh Hart, it does not completely cut the head off the snake because Julius Randle had a pretty good game offensive rebounding wise too, but it certainly makes things easier for the cast because they gave up 17 second chance opportunities to New York. I believe New York scored 23 points off of those and you just kind of have to cut the head off the snake a little bit and yeah, that's where I'm at. And I, I have a question for you on maybe mm-hmm. something the Cavs could do differently as well. And it's something I didn't notice until I kind of like went back and looked at the numbers and just kind of looked at certain plays, like certain vignettes of the game. And the Cavs did a really good job with some on-ball pressure situations. They did a good job forcing turnovers or just like catching the Knicks either sleeping or being sloppy with the ball or initiating offensive sets. And because they're not a very assist heavy team and when they do move the ball, like it's sometimes easy to read where the ball is going. But like, I did notice like the Cavs would get in good opportunities where they had forced turnovers. And like, there's the play where Donovan Mitchell gets Jetty Osmond on the fast break and that's good. Or there's instances where like Ricky Rubio draws a force, draws an offensive foul and that's a turnover or Darius Garland turns over the ball on the fast break or things like that. If the Cavs can just tighten up their mindfulness with the ball, when they force these turnovers and kind of get these prime positions against the Knicks, like that could, I don't want to say a hundred percent like cancel out what the Knicks are doing on the offensive glass, but at least give you a better fighting chance. Because if you can't completely stop this, you have to find some type of edge elsewhere. And that might be where the Cleveland finds they're in. Yeah. The Knicks had a a turnover rate of 17.2% in game one. The Cavs at 14.9. Cleveland, I think has to be a team that just doesn't turn the ball over as much. They're just need to kind of maximize some of that stuff. And Look, I mean, ton of shots at the rim. Didn't shoot as well at the rim as I normally do. Like defensively, mm-hmm. like you would feel pretty good about. I think some of the stuff. I think that the capitalizing on turnovers and also just not turning the ball over as much. Um, I think would would be a particularly big deal. The the, the I ever I'm looking at the cleaning the glass box score and just the <laughs> the offensive rebounding stuff. Just it's like a, it's, this, it's it's nutty, man. When it when it's like in burnt origin cleaning the glass, it's like upper upper percentile, and it's just like there's like in the overview and four factor section at the top, it's like a lot of blue because this game, like as close as it was, was not like the highest quality basketball necessarily. But then there's like a a bright burnt orange like offensive rebounding percentage for the Knicks, and it's like oh crap, that was really important. All right, today's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. Remember. 
to play. All you got to do is pick two to five players, and if they go score more or less in their prize picks projections, you win. You can up to 10 times your money in any entry. There's no competing against other people. It is just you versus those projections available. Prize picks offers projections on any sport that you watch. This includes the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, PGA, WNBA, NASCAR, tennis, MMA, boxing, uh, disc golf, and many, many more. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It is that easy. Prize picks offer safe and fast withdrawals. It is currently operational in over 30 states and Canada. Download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com to sign up today and play daily fantasy sports. First time users can receive 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with the promo code locked on. If you deposit 100, Prize Picks will give you 100. If you deposit 50, Prize Picks will give you 50. Don't forget, enter that promo code locked on and sign up for an instant deposit match up to $100. Last segment, Locked on Cavs. Chris Manning, Evan Demerle here. Last thing I want to say about game two to watch, Evan, is mm-hmm. if, if there's one other thing about J.D. Osmond we didn't hit on that I think is worth kind of considering. He is one of the... Him and Okoro both, I think, provide something in terms of getting you out in transition. The Cavs, to my personal liking, play a little slow. They sometimes are kind of dragging to get into their sets. They can take a little bit to get out on the, out on the break. If they have two players who like to run and who like to get out off of, off of rebounds and off of turnovers, uh, it is Osmond and Okoro. Mobley does as well off of live rebounds, although that require him to have a, a better rebounding game than he did in game one to kind of unlock some of that. But that is a way I think Cleveland can make life easier on itself. If those guys can get out and run, if Mobley can get rebounds and get out and, and push the pace and, and not just have, rely on Mitchell and Garland to kind of set everything up against a set defense, Cleveland will look better if they just move a little bit faster, I think. I mean, yeah, they they will. They they definitely don't have the legs to match the Knicks just in terms of bench depth, but they have guys like Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland who are comfortable with playing in with with speed and initiating offense in the fast break. We saw it especially with Mitchell in game 1, but like as you noted, there is uh Coro Osman. I think Evan Mobley should be lumped into this category too. Um but the Cavs just playing at a slower pace. They are they are lethargic at times setting up their sets, but it is also just a victim of playing two seven footers in your starting lineup like the Cavs just naturally play slower and I think the methodical process does work but when you have a team like the Knicks who are one of the better offensive teams in the NBA I believe in terms of offensive rating they finished second in the league to end the year yeah. so like that that's that's pretty good obviously and so there may be times and we or at least I did when I talked with um Alex Wolf and you might have as well when you talked to Gavin about this for our Locked On Knicks crossover like the Cavs could find themselves in a precarious spot where they try to match the Knicks in pace but they don't need to do it on every play but if there's opportunities to get easy buckets like why would you do that to yourself because as you had noted in the last segment this was not a generally pretty basketball game for Cleveland pretty much across the board and the advanced numbers really sink your teeth into it and like just show you that it's just not a pretty basketball game in general and well, for as much of a slugfest and just grind out as game one was, I'm curious to see if Cleveland is able to kind of come out and maybe play a little bit of a cleaner offense, obviously limiting turnovers, but maybe finding just those easier opportunities on the fast break so you're not just absolutely gassing yourselves and just watching Donovan Mitchell have to do like every little thing on offense um, and defense at times too, just to try and find a way to get you a two-point lead that you watch evaporate almost instantaneously. 
All right, so end on this bit of news, non-playoff related. Memphis's Jordan Jackson Jr. wins Defensive Player of the Year, the newly named Akeem Olajuwon Award. Uh, as far as voting went, he finished first with uh, 391 total points. Brooke Lopez from Milwaukee finished second with 309 points. Evan Mobley finished third. He had eight first place votes, 10 second place votes, and 31 third place votes. Evan, here's what I will say about this. Mm-hmm. I am in the camp that like I think Jaron Jackson Jr. like is a deserving candidate. And I think like the the people that have spent a lot of time arguing about this on Twitter have like are just like wasting a lot of their time he's really good i understand especially, the especially when how nice the weather was before monday just like, go touch touch some grass touch, touch you know, grass touch some grass have you know have a water have a beer if you're you know if you partake in alcohol whatever jared jr had a really good season i want to put something mm-hmm. in perspective with mopey though this is a 21 year old player who finished third in defense play there jared jackson jr is the at 23 years old is the second youngest player to win the award um and he is uh, it's only by a matter of months. So here are the players that are 23, 23 years old is the youngest anyone has ever won the award. Alvin Robinson won it, Kawhi won it, Dwight Howard, and Jaron Jackson. Those are, that, those are four players. Evan Mobley is going to turn 22 in June. Okay? I don't His know birthday, about you, but I'm feeling 22. pretty good. Yeah. He will turn 22 years old on June 18th because he was born in 2001. Okay? He has two full seasons to potentially win Defense Player of the Year and be the youngest player ever to win the award. It would not shock me. In fact, I would probably feel pretty optimistic about it that that might happen. He is that good. And for him to be third at age 21 at Defense Player of the Year and to be voted on by some people and have a really legitimate case, even if like J- Jackson wins, that is so impressive. That is astounding for a, a player to be that good on defense and consider that good on defense in year two of his NBA career at 21 years old. Just as maybe you're annoyed about that. I get it. You're, people want to be fans. I get it. You know, you watch Evan Mobley every night and like you come away as down that I certainly do. But like this guy is going to be a stud defender for years and years and years and he's 21 years old and it would not surprise me. Yeah, you know, just spicy over here. It would not shock me in fact, I would think it is likely, in my mind, that he's going to win Defense Player of the Year before he turns 23 because he's on that trajectory right now. I agree with you. Um, I, I wouldn't even be surprised if he gets all defensive. Like, if he's first-team all-defense or even second-team all-defense this year, like, that would not surprise me either just because he's been that good. And sure, people can get caught up in the minutia of it, but Defensive Player of the Year means best, oh, like, just best defender in the league, like, in a singular sense. But, like... Evan Mobley is still very, very good. And to Chris's point, this is his second year in the league, and he finished third in Defensive Player of the Year voting behind um, Brooke Lopez, who you can make a more strong argument, prob- or maybe should have finished behind Mobley just because of how the Bucks uh, function on defense, especially with Giannis and their drop coverage and just their schemes in general. But listen a lot on Bucks if you want to hear more about that. Um, Mobley is just, he was the catalyst for the Cavs last year. He's the reason why Cleveland was able to just kind of become a winning team overnight like they did, become a defensive, just grinded out defensive team um, to begin with. It's interesting because when you like just pick the brains of like Jared Allen or JB Vickerstaff, like Allen understands his role and responsibility, which is to lock down the paint, protect the rim as much as he can, provide rebounding opportunities and more than anything allow Evan Mobley the luxury to be this, as Chris describes it, just an alien on defense where he's able to defend in isolation. He's comfortable defending guards on the perimeter. He's comfortable 
switching on guys if you force a switch on him. He is more than okay with covering so much ground on the defensive side of the ball, whether it's up at the perimeter or he rotates towards the paint and just keeps defending and sticking to his man or just the ball in general. Like he does so much stuff and it's just like the coaching staff or just anyone you really like talk to who has like a very strong appreciation understanding of Emily's game is he's a sponge for this stuff and like you tell him something and he understands it right away and I'm sure yeah there's disappointment in the moment for him personally but I'm sure he's just going to internalize this maybe he uses it as fuel and motivation and fire similarly to maybe the rookie of the year campaign last year but he didn't seem that bothered by it like it was the most mild-mannered contest between him and Scotty Barnes at the end of the day but award stuff is silly um like getting up in your feelings about it i agree with chris with touching grass but if you just take a step back and just appreciate the fact that the Cavs were able to get the best player from his draft class who is going to be their best player in probably no time at all at this point and it's going to be because of that be, be because of that defensive first identity that he rocks with it's going to take cleveland to such amazing and incredible heights and i'm fascinated to watch revin mobley like peaks at because I, I don't see an end in sight whether it's like we can talk about the offensive uh superlatives and hyperboles i'm sure people are like oh game one he didn't look like tim duncan blah 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 like, i don't care but i know he's special but like the defensive stuff he does is just so incredible on a night-to-night basis that once he just kind of finds his footing and his comfort level in the playoffs like he he could be a monster next to donovan mitchell just more so on the defensive side of the ball whereas mitchell is just going to be that offensive beast that he always is come playoff time one there, again, came to Tuesday. Evan and I will have a recap of that um, after that game ends. Please subscribe on YouTube or podcast platform of choice if you have not already. This episode was produced by Jake Stevens. Peace out, everyone. Have a great Tuesday. Tuesday.